All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24? Matthew 24. This morning we're going to pick it up at verse 45, where Jesus said, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Surely I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We have been studying Matthew chapter 24 for the last few weeks, which contains the signs connected to the second coming of Jesus to establish his kingdom. Now, as we come to verse 45 of chapter 24, and then running through chapter 25, the Lord moves from talking about the signs of his coming to some final exhortations toward faithful service, vigilant preparedness, and final judgment concerning those who will be alive when he comes. Now, remembering the context, as we have been looking at this over the last few weeks, the context of Matthew chapter 24 is Israel, all right? They're the focus. The church is gone. The church is in heaven when the tribulation period begins. That's what Matthew 24 deals with, the great tribulation period. That last seven years that precede Jesus' second coming, which are full of signs that that generation is to look for, which will indicate the nearness of his coming. So the context is primarily Israel, if not exclusively, because there will be believers on the face of the earth during the tribulation period that won't be Jewish, and they will be affected too by the Antichrist's wrath and so on. But Again, primarily the focus in this chapter is uh, Israel. And during the tribulation period, there will be believing Jews and many unbelieving Jews. And the idea that he could come like a thief and catch so many Jews by surprise, even though the signs of his second coming are all there, well, that bothers a lot of people. Because they say to themselves, well, how could Jesus give all these signs to look for, and yet when he comes, he catches, you know, these unbelieving Jews unaware. Well, <laughs> that shouldn't be that hard to figure out because most Jews were unaware at his first coming, even though there were plenty of signs. Remember on Palm Sunday, when he rides into Jerusalem to present himself as king, okay, as their Messiah. And before he gets to Jerusalem, he comes up to the top of the Mount of Olives and sees the city laid out before him. And he begins to weep. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only known this, this day, the day that was prophesied, that day of his first coming was prophesied in the book of Daniel, the very day. Yet they were ignorant to his first coming because they were not watching. They were not watching. And it's going to be the same way at his second coming. This then becomes a warning, I believe, to the nation, not to be blind to his second coming the way their forefathers were to his first coming. With that in mind then, guys, the faithful servant is referring to believing Jews who will be serving the Lord diligently during the tribulation period. We know 144,000 will get saved 
right up front and will be evangelists like none before them. So you will have a whole bunch of Jewish people who will be faithful during the tribulation period. The evil servant in this passage refers to those unbelieving Jews who even though they see the signs and are being told by the faithful Jews he's coming back, well, they still deceive themselves into thinking that they have time to repent and as such they continue in their evil lifestyles until it's too late and they are judged with the rest of the unbelievers. You know, in his commentary on this passage, William Barclay, author and historian, relates the following story to kind of illustrate the danger of spiritual procrastination. He said, and I quote, There is a fable which tells of three apprentice demons who were coming to this earth to finish their apprenticeship. They were talking to Satan, the chief of the demons, about their plans to tempt and ruin men. The first said, I will tell them there is no God. Satan said, oh, that will not delude many, for they know there is a God. The second said, I will tell men there is no hell. Satan answered, you will not deceive anybody that way. Men know in their hearts there is a hell for sin. The third said, I will tell men that there is no hurry. Go, Satan said, you will ruin men by the thousands. Folks, the most dangerous of all delusions is that there is plenty of time to get serious about God, and to get my life right with God. I am personally convinced, and I have no way to prove this, this is my conviction, that there are many people who will spend eternity in hell who believe in God and who fully intended one day to get their life right with Him, stop messing around with sin. They fully intended that there was going to come a day when they were going to repent and get right with God, get back to church, and so on, only to die prematurely. They weren't ready. And now it's too late. So this is a very serious thing. One of the things that Satan used very effectively is to get people to believe they've got plenty of time. Sow your wild oats, especially young people. Sow your wild oats, you know. You've got to live a little bit before you get into God. Well, you're listening to the voice of the devil when you hear that in your head, okay? Now, before we actually launch into the passage, let me just say this. Again, Looking at the context now, to try to make this passage about faithful Christians who, because of their faithfulness, make it into heaven, the faithful servant, and then the unfaithful servant represents unfaithful Christians who, because of their unfaithfulness, lose their salvation and are sent to hell. Listen, that violates the context of the passage, which is clearly Israel, not the church, and not the least of which destroys the whole doctrine of justification by faith, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. We don't work for our salvation. Our faithfulness is something we do because we love the Lord because of what He's done for us. It doesn't earn us salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. Again, if the idea of Jesus calling these evil people His servants bothers you, because in your mind you're thinking, look, He calls them servants, that way they must be believers... Because Jesus wouldn't call unbelievers as servants. Really? Do you realize that the Bible refers to all people and angels, good and bad, including Satan himself as the servants of God, subservient to God Almighty? So this especially applies in this passage to the nation of Israel, the chosen people and servants of God. Now, you're thinking, well, this only relates to Israel. What am I doing here? I could be out having a cup of coffee somewhere. 
Well, look, all right, just sit tight, because I, I, having said all that, we've got to get the context, okay? But having said all that, I believe that much of what the Lord had to say in verses 45 to 51 could apply to us as well. I mean, the whole, the whole theme is being prepared, being watchful. Whether you're talking to Jews living in the tribulation period to beware and watchful for his second coming, or you're talking about Christians living right now who are looking for the Lord's return, knowing that the rapture is about to happen, we all want to be ready, we all want to be watchful. So I think there's a lot here that could apply to us as well, and we will glean that. But remember what John said in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 28. He said, now little children, talking to Christians, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So we don't want to be ashamed when the Lord comes for his church. We don't want to hear the trumpet sound, the angels shout, the Lord say, come up here, and instantly we're in his presence, and now we're ashamed because we weren't really living full on for him. So there's a lot we can, we can glean. Now, in these final verses of Matthew 24, Jesus contrasts two different kinds of servants that will be alive when he comes. One servant he describes as faithful and wise, the other as evil and profligate. This section focuses on, listen, the character of these two servants, which led to their conduct and ultimately to the final consequences of their actions when Jesus returns and they stand before him to give an account and be judged. So we'll look at, first of all, at the faithful and wise servant. First of all, looking at his character. In verse 45, once again, Jesus said, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? The fact that the Lord refers to this servant as faithful and wise indicates the character, the character of this man or woman. Now, we're talking about wisdom, okay? First of all, who is the wise servant? Wisdom, all right? Let me just say this, so you have a working knowledge of what wisdom's all about. To the Greek in that culture, to the Greek living at that time, wisdom, listen, was the accumulation of information. To the Jew in that culture, wisdom was the proper application of information. You see, to the Greek, learning became an end in itself. The goal of life to them was simply to expand their intellect. But to the Jew, learning was only a means to an end. And the end was to live out in their lives the truths that God had taught them. You see, for the Jew, only God's word could truly make a person wise. Jesus is commending the servant for being wise. What makes a servant of God wise? Well, the word of God. Didn't the psalmist say this in Psalm 19, verse 7? The law of the Lord is perfect. The law is another way of saying the word of God. Okay, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, listen, making wise the simple. God's word makes wise the simple. How? Because you're reading the heart, the thoughts of God. You don't have to be a great intellect to just read what God has said and learn from it and apply it, right? That makes you wise. And then the psalmist said in Psalm 119, that classic psalm about the Word of God, in verse 99, he said, I have more understanding than my teachers. How is that possible? Because I meditate on your testimonies, or on your word. The writer of the Proverbs said, 
that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Look, guys, evil isn't what society defines it to be. It's what God says it is, like homosexuality. Do you realize that right now, today, in the city of Chicago, going on is the gay pride parade? They used to sell cigarettes with the tagline, you've come a long way, baby. Well, we've come a long way, but it's not good. It's amazing how far we have degenerated as a nation. That today, homosexuality is defined by society as good, something to be celebrated, and those who oppose it as being evil, those to be condemned. Do you realize that God said to the prophet Isaiah, woe to that nation who calls evil good and good evil? Do you further realize the book of Revelation tells us that in the last days, the times just prior to Christ's return, there would be a moral inversion where people would begin to call good evil and evil good. And we're seeing it in our country today. It is always an indicator that we are getting close to judgment. If this country doesn't repent and God graciously gives us a revival, which we pray for. And so the fear of the Lord, guys, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, evil based on what God defines it to be in his word. This then, guys, becomes the seed. How does a person become wise? Well, you have to plant within their heart the seed. What is the seed? The seed is the word of God. This then, guys, becomes the seed from which godly character grows. We're talking about this servant's character, right? When we sow the word of God into our hearts, a beautiful thing happens. It takes root and begins to grow, and it produces godly character. Godly character, which is the start of all that God wants to do in our lives practically. The heart is where he gets at first. If God can get a hold of a person's heart, he can get a hold of their life. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And the psalmist said, the word of God makes wise the simple. And since the child of God, since for the child of God, wisdom is learning the word of God, but not just learning it. We don't want to, to learn as an end in itself. We always as Christians are to learn to live. That's the idea. To learn to live. And as we learn the word of God, it should be our desire, and godly people will do this. Good servants. They will learn, they will plant the word in their hearts, and then they will live out faithfully. There's that second word. Who is that faithful and wise servant? Well, first of all, the wisdom comes from knowing God and planting his word in your heart, and then you want to live out in your life what God has said faithfully. That's a mark of a faithful servant. And it brings us to the second point, really, his conduct. We look at his character. How about the conduct of the faithful servant? Verse 45 again. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so what? Doing, conduct, right? When Jesus says the wise servant is the one who faithfully conducts his service as ruler over his master's household to give the other servants food in due season, he's using the illustration, listen, of a steward. A steward. Listen to what Paul the Apostle said on this subject in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul said, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. 
Listen, a steward is a servant who has been put in charge of another man's household. The most famous, I think, steward in Scripture is uh, Joseph. In the book of Genesis, chapter 39 in particular, I'm thinking of, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, bought by Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's uh, captains of his army, very wealthy man, gone a lot in the affairs of state. And so he buys Joseph as a slave, but notices almost immediately Joseph had this incredible ability to manage well anything he was given to do. Plus, he was a man of character. So it wasn't long before Potiphar raised him up and, and appointed him as steward over all of his household. A steward is basically a manager. And, of course, it would be Joseph's responsibility to make sure all the other slaves had their assignment for the day, and then they carried them out, that all the supplies were bought, including food, uh, to feed the entire household. That was his responsibility as a steward. Again, a steward didn't own anything. He simply took care of what belonged to another. And that is exactly how God describes all of us in the body of Christ, his family, his household, and in particular those who are leaders in the church, pastors and other leaders. The Bible says in Galatians 6 verse 10 that the church is the household of faith. The household of faith. And we have been entrusted by God with the mysteries of God. That's another way of saying New Testament revelation. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying primarily ministers, pastors, teachers in the body of Christ should dispense the word of God. In other words, give God's people spiritual food faithfully, faithfully. We have been placed over the household of God. We've been made stewards of what belongs to God. This is God's church. You are a part of his church. So in a sense, this is the house of God. And the leaders in this church have been placed over you. It's our responsibility to faithfully feed you from God's word. That's, prim that's our primary responsibility. And we have teachers that also teach, and we make sure that they understand that their teaching is very important, that it's biblical, it's accurate, you know, that there's nothing that, you know, you're getting from other places, bringing in, trying to mix it into the Word of God. We want uh, the Word of God presented in a pure and unadulterated way when you come to Calvary Chapel of Elk Grove. Now, I'm definitely not infallible, okay? No pastor is. I take, I go to great lengths to make sure that I study a passage quite a bit so that I know, I believe I know what it's saying so I can present it to you. But look, if the Bereans who were commended by the Holy Spirit didn't even take what Paul the Apostle said without going home, checking it against the Scriptures to make sure what Paul was telling them was true, and the Holy Spirit commended them, you do the same. Don't ever take the word of any man or woman who teaches you God's Word. Don't ever assume that they are teaching you accurately. It's your responsibility to go home, get the Word out, ask the Holy Spirit to show you if anything that has been taught to you is not correct, and uh, go from there. But whether you're talking about Jewish believers living during the tribulation period or Christians living in the church age right now, we need to faithfully share God's truth with those around us. And again, especially it applies to pastors and teachers. Listen to what God said to the prophet Amos way back in the Old Testament period, Amos 8, verse 11. God said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hear from hearing the words of the Lord. 
Now, thankfully, we haven't reached that place yet. We can still go on TV and radio. There are still many wonderful, faithful Bible teachers, both men and women, that we can learn from. But every year the number is dwindling. There is no lack of preachers and teachers on radio and TV. A lot of them are flat-out heretics. Others are passing out junk food like it's, you know, spinach or whatever. You know, I mean, junk food, <laughs> thing about junk food is we crave junk food. But we don't grow strong eating junk food. We grow strong by eating good stuff. They tell us that when you go into the supermarket, don't go into the center of the store. That's where all the junk food is, all the processed stuff. Hang around the perimeter, right? I really try to do that. <laughs> I just find myself drawn to that section. I've gotten better, but there's always a couple of things that I, you know, that's my problem. Um, but too much junk food, a little bit's okay. Too much, a steady diet of junk food, you're going to get very sick. Your body craves it, but you'll never grow healthy eating it. The same is true with the spiritual fluff and junk food we're hearing on the radio and TV today in the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's just pure junk. But people are eating it up like crazy, aren't they? Why? Because we're in the last days. And what did Paul say about the last days? There is coming a time when people in the church will no longer want to hear sound doctrine but will gather themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. Let me paraphrase. Filling them up with all kinds of junk food, spiritually speaking. They don't want their ears tickled. You know, that, that is what we see today all over the place. We see churches that are just feeding people junk food, and they're packed. They're packed. But as a parent, even though your kids wanted to eat junk food all day long, it was your responsibility to feed them good things. Now, I'm not condescending to you and saying you're my kids. I'm just saying, as a pastor, the responsibility is very much the same. It's my responsibility to put together healthy meals from the Word, to make sure that we study even the hard things. We don't just kind of touch on all the stuff that we want to hear. We have to hear the hard things. Look, uh, Matthew 24, that's a hard thing we've been looking at, right? So a lot of churches won't even touch this. That's the great thing about going verse by verse through the Bible. You've got to touch on everything. You can't just gravitate to the things that you like, people want to hear. You've got to touch on all of it. And so it's very important. And we're seeing less and less, I think, faithful teachers of God's Word in America. More and more people who are willing to give out junk food. But listen, here's what God said to Israel. He said, there is coming a day when I will give you shepherds according to my heart that will feed you, listen, with knowledge and with understanding. Knowledge of my word and understanding of my ways. My ways, not man's ways. My ways are not the easy ways, God said. They're the way of the cross, but they're the right way. And David said he will lead me in the right paths. He didn't say he will lead me in the easiest paths. He just said he'll lead me in the right paths for the purposes he has ordained for my life. I don't know about you, but I want God to lead me in whatever path he has for my life. And it's not always easy, but I really don't want an easy life. I want a life that's going to bring the most fruit forth for the Lord's glory. 
Well, what about this faithful servant? He's got good character. He's got faithful conduct. What are the consequences? Well, verse 47, backing up to verse 46 one more time. Blessed is that servant whom his master when he comes will find so doing. Assuredly, here's the consequence. I say to you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. Now, Jesus doesn't elaborate here. He doesn't amplify uh, what he means by that. But we read in other places that, and I'll just kind of condense it and paraphrase it. What Jesus is saying is how faithful you are right now on this earth, in this life, to do, in doing whatever he's given you to do. I don't care if it's uh, being a pastor or a missionary or changing diapers in the nursery or passing out flyers as a greeter. If you do it faithfully to the best of your ability with the right heart, God will reward you as anybody who was faithful in whatever ministry he called him to. That's the great thing about being a Christian. We're not paid by commission, okay? It's not the guys with the biggest churches, they get the, the most, they think they're going to get the most rewards. I'm convinced there's going to be a very shocking day on the Day of Judgment for many uh, who uh, had big ministries. Not all, but many who think that because they filled their churches with a lot of people, Somehow they were faithful, and God's going to just really pat them on the back someday and uh, give them a great reward. Uh, maybe, if they had the right heart and taught the word faithfully. But I'm convinced that's not going to happen with most. All right? So the way the Lord rewards us is no matter if you're faithful, whatever he's given you to do now, in the kingdom, we will be rulers over various cities. Okay? We will be reigning with him, and we will be rulers over various cities. And he talked about that in the parable of the talents in different places. He, he reinforced that. All right. So the faithful servant, that represents true believers in the tribulation period, the Jews primarily. How about the evil and profligate servant? Let's look at his character, verse 48. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Again, character starts in the heart. Listen, if that evil servant says in his heart, we're talking about his character now. The word evil here is a Greek word that means evil in the heart or through and through evil. Or in other words, it describes an unbeliever. Somebody who hasn't been born of the Spirit and therefore hasn't received a new heart. Now he's talking about people who claim to serve him, who have this evil heart. They're not redeemed. You say, are, those, are there a lot of people in the church like that? Guys? There are whole denominations today loaded with these kinds of servants, quote-unquote, who think they're serving the Lord but in and are genuine Christians, but in reality are not. Look, let me read you a press release. Just happened last week, okay? I quote, Last week, the Presbyterian Church USA voted 429 to 175 to approve same-sex marriage. Changing language, and I'm reading from a news release, changing language that define marriage as a union between a man and a woman to marriage is defined by two people, just two people. We're thankful they kept it to two people, okay? I guess we should rejoice in something. But it goes on to say, on a related matter, the assembly voted 328 to 238 to allow ministers of the denomination to preside over same-sex marriages in jurisdictions where such unions are legal. In 2011, the assembly voted to ordain clergy who have same-sex partners. The Episcopal Church started allowing the blessing of same-sex marriages last year. The United Church of Christ has allowed them since 2005. 
the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America allows individual church ministers to make the call, end quote. So we're seeing all around us the apostasy taking hold in the church. These folks, I am convinced, and I know because I've heard them on TV, they are convinced that they are honoring God because God is love, isn't he? I hear that. So because God is love, I guess he just lets us do whatever we want. Okay? He's also holy and righteous, by the way. But that's how they get around everything. God is love. You know, these people love each other. Who are you to say? You want to be married to people, the person you love? Why are you restricting that? Look, I didn't create marriage, okay? I don't have the right to regulate it or revise it or whatever. I, I just need to follow what God has ordained. And I'm convinced on the day of judgment, as they stand before the Lord, these ministers, they're going to hear what Jesus said he would say to them, and many like them in Luke 6, verse 46, why did you call me Lord, Lord, and yet didn't do the things that I told you? Well, Lord, you're love, aren't you? Yes. I so loved the world that I gave, gave my only begotten son to die for the world. Not that the world could go on living in sin. Remember the woman caught in the act of adultery? I don't condemn you, but go and what? Sin no more. Our God's a very loving, gracious, forgiving God. But he never tolerates sin. He forgives sinners, but never endorses a sinful lifestyle. I think it's also interesting, guys. The first thing that Jesus mentions that indicates whether or not a person claiming to serve him has an evil heart of unbelief is that, listen, he isn't watching for the Lord's return nor warning others to be watchful. First thing he says here, there's a lot of other qualities and characteristics that we could point to. But isn't it interesting how among clergy now, I'm thinking, one of the qualities that stands out as, as representative of an evil heart is that this servant is not watching for the Lord's return nor warning others to be watchful. Those who say, my master isn't coming for a long time, or at very least not faithful servants, and at worst false Christians, and if they're pastors, false shepherds. Wolves in sheep's clothing that deny the nearness of the Lord's return. That is, if they even believe at all that he's coming back visibly and physically to establish a kingdom on the earth. So a lot of clergy who don't even believe in the second coming. They don't believe Jesus is coming back to establish a kingdom. Some believe he already came back invisibly. Okay? In fact, some teach we're in the kingdom age right now. Are you happy with this? <laughs> Again, i got to tell you, if this is the kingdom age, I'm really disappointed. <laughs> so if you believe he's already come back, there's nothing to watch for, right? Look, John the Apostle tells us in his first epistle, chapter 3, that constantly looking for the Lord's return and being ready will produce, listen, a holy life and keep us from being entangled with the cares of this life. Jesus went on to say, that those with evil hearts and characters who say the Lord's coming is not near but afar off demonstrate what's in their hearts, okay? Because, you know, we can't see no person's heart, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what's in a person's heart will eventually work its way out into their lives. And Jesus said, look, the fruit of an evil heart is going to be corrupt character. Excuse me, corrupt conduct, right? Corrupt behavior. 
He says that in verse 49, but again, verse 48, if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and listen, here's the conduct, begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. And then he goes on. Again, a telltale sign this person is not saved because in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 7, Paul said, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but be watchful and sober. Listen, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. In other words, these are unbelievers. These are the characteristics or the conduct of unbelievers. Look, before I got saved, I lived in the nighttime, okay? That's when I went out, all right? I mean, I didn't go to bed at 10, 30, 11 o'clock. I went out to the bar with my buddies to drink. That's what you did when you were, you know, an unbeliever. Now, as a believer, of course, I don't do any of that. I'm in bed by 11 o'clock many nights, all right? Because I'm up early getting in the Word. But the point is, when Jesus came into our hearts, He gave us a new heart. And that worked its way out into our lives in new actions. It wasn't that we were trying so hard, oh, I can't go to the bars anymore. Oh, i got to go to church. It's like I had no desire to go drinking anymore, and I love to be in church with God's people. That is a fruit of a new heart, new character. And listen, the evil activities Jesus mentions, the beating of fellow slaves, the eating and drinking with drunkards, listen, that's not going to characterize every unbelieving Jew in the tribulation period, of course. But it definitely does reflect the attitude that many will have at that time because they think the Lord is not coming for a long time and they feel free to indulge themselves in whatever sins and pleasures they desire. Of course, this is not just going to this is not going to be just unbelieving Jews, all right? The world at large, uh, let me say this. The world at large during the tribulation period, listen, wickedness will reach its absolute full and unbridled potential. I mean, let me read to you out of Revelation 9. And this is on the heels of some horrific judgments. God has poured out on the world, hoping to shake people to their senses, that they would repent and receive Christ and leave the sins they're walking in. But listen to what it says. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, listen, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons. Open demon worship during the tribulation period. Again, a moral inversion, where people will worship Satan and demons, thinking that they're God and God's. They didn't repent of their demon worship, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You say, well, that's, what is that? We got all that going on now. Yes, we do. But it's going to happen during the tribulation period on a scale, a worldwide scale, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Again, now we have a lot of people who are decent and you have pockets of very horrific immorality in different places around our country. There are certain cities we could single out for special mention that seem to revel in certain kinds of immoral behavior. But they're isolated incidents, right? How would you like a world where every city, every town, lived with unbridled immorality, thievery, murder, and such? And you had little pockets of righteousness. That's the world that's coming under the Antichrist in the tribulation period. 
How about the consequence for this unfaithful servant? Verse 50, we're almost done. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour when he is not aware of, then, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, verse 50 once again touches on a recurring theme that's woven in throughout verses 36 to 51. And that is that Jesus' coming will catch many by surprise, listen, who are not watching and therefore not ready for his coming. The idea of cutting them in two is just a graphic way of saying they're going to be destroyed physically. And I have to think of the sword that proceeds out of the Lord's mouth, Revelation 19:15, when he comes back, right, the second coming. And the first thing he does is all the unbelievers who are gathered in the valley of Megiddo to, to go to war against him, he just wipes them out with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. Just a graphic kind of a, just cut them in two. He will cut them in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, the idea of weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth is always associated with what? So here we see a physical judgment. They're wiped out physically. Then we see a spiritual judgment. They're destroyed again spiritually. The second death is hell, right? First death, physical. Second death, remember Moody? Unbelievers are born once, die twice. Well, here they die physically, and they are then destroyed spiritually in hell for all eternity. For all eternity. In fact, I just quoted you, Moody, when I headed in my... I thought I quoted it earlier. That was last service, so pray for me. Uh, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. I'm where I am. What, what day is this? All right. All right, let me just tell you, Moody said, all right, Moody said Christians are born twice and die once, whereas unbelievers are born once and die twice. And again, for Christians, okay, we are, we are born twice, born once physically, receive Christ, you're born again spiritually, which means you only die once, which is physical death. We won't ever suffer the second death, which is the lake of fire or hell, right? Now, there's a generation that won't even see physical death when the rapture happens, and that's my vote right there, that we're that, we're that generation. But Moody went on to say, unbelievers are born once and die twice. They're born once physically, they die twice, once physically, once spiritually. Now, I think the statement by Jesus, and he will appoint this servant, his portion with the hypocrites, is especially telling, okay? Listen. One author put it this way. He said, The fact that such persons will be assigned along with the hypocrites suggests that they were not hypocrites. Just as today, many people in the end time will be open and honest about their unbelief, even wearing such honesty as a badge of intellectual and moral integrity. But honest unbelievers are just as lost as hypocrites who pretend to have faith. They will go to the same place as the religious phonies that they feel superior to and despise, end quote. You know, some people think because they're upfront about their sorceries or their witchcraft or whatever they're doing. I'm not a Christian, you know. I'm a witch. Well, wonderful, okay? <laughs> we're, we're real excited for you. Now, what do you think? Because you're honest about being a witch and not playing a, a, a phony Christian game? That you're somehow better than the person who's an unbeliever but he goes to church? Look, all unbelievers will suffer their fate in the lake of fire. 
I mean, people wear it as a badge of honor today. Well, I'm not a hypocrite. You know, I'm a Satan worshiper. Well, okay, all right. But what does that mean? I mean, you're, you're still going to hell. Get on your knees and receive Christ. Look, I'll have you turn to one scripture. Matthew, uh, Revelation 3, we'll close. Because in Revelation 3, Jesus gave a warning to the church of Sardis. And if you study the book of Revelation, you will see that many commentators see in this letter to Sardis a reference to Protestantism, the Protestant church, denominational Protestantism. If you're interested in that subject, go on our website and access the Revelation 3 study, and you can find out we went into this in great length. But if that's true, and I believe there's an element to that uh, in this letter, Imagine the Lord Jesus Christ is dictating a letter, right now we'll say, to Protestant denominations, we'll say, in America. Here's what he would say to them. He said, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, they're proud of their name, we're Lutherans, we're Methodists, we're Presbyterians. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Hey, look, there are true believers in, in probably all of these denominations, Protestant denominations, and God love them. Many of them are trying to hold the fort down. They're trying to come against their denomination's uh, uh, acceptance of gay marriage and so on. They're not doing well in winning that battle. And eventually they may have to just leave. The, if it's a sinking ship that can't be righted, then you're going to have to jump ship and find yourself a good church. Let me just say this. We are living, guys, at a time of great apostasy in the church. Don't put your faith in a church or in a pastor or in a preacher. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. You'll never go wrong. And be faithful. Be watching. And be prepared. Lest coming, he catch you unprepared. Which will be the theme of his opening remarks in what we call chapter 25. You realize, of course, the chapters were added later. It's the same thing, right? He's still talking. He didn't say, okay, let's have a break, get a falafel, and we'll come back and start chapter 25. He just kept talking. And later on, somebody said, oh, let's break it here and put 25 here. He goes, it's the same thing. He's the same discourse, okay? And uh, we'll look at the theme of people who are not prepared when he comes. Remember the parable of the ten virgins? Five of the gals had enough oil and were ready when the bridegroom came. Five didn't have enough oil and were not ready when the bridegroom came and could not enter into the kingdom. You know how many people think that's talking about the church? It's not talking about the church. And I'll show you why. Now, could we glean things for the church? Yeah. But the church is not in view. And so we'll try to show you that when we meet next time. All right, Father.
We thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Your word does tell us many things to watch for that indicate your coming is near. We know it's so near, you're even at the door. And Lord, give your people grace. Lord, we want to be watching. We want to be ready. We want to be serving when you come. That when you come, we're not ashamed at your appearing. We can hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. Come, enter into the joy of your Lord. I will make you ruler over many cities in the kingdom. So thank you, Lord, for your great grace. Lord, we'll never be a large church, I'm convinced. But we pray that we are a faithful church. That we not ever deny your name, but we are faithful in keeping all that you have said. Give us grace to do that. And Father, we thank you. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.